Well, good morning. This morning we have the joy of speaking about one of Yogananda's great enthusiasms, the creation of spiritual communities, one of his original aims and ideals. My name is Nayaswami Anandi, and I serve here at the Expanding Light. And I'd like to talk about the inspiration behind spiritual communities. One of the benefits of living so long in community is attunement with your guru bhais. And yesterday, uh, Nayaswami Parvati's talk was just the perfect segue into what I wanted to talk about. Because Yogananda gave many reasons to start community, to spread a spirit of brotherhood in all lands, to show the importance of simple living and high thinking. But he was an avatar, and his primary goal was to bring people to God. And to come to God means the ego has to go. When God steps in, the ego steps out. <clears throat> or what I, say, what I should say is, when the ego steps out, God can step in. Um, and that's what we're trying to do in community. And it offers a wonderful way, not only of supporting each other in our spiritual lives, but even in the very fabric of community, we find the blessings of how we can learn to live more expansively, less involved in our own personal attachments. And when I was thinking about Master sharing the heart of Yogananda and communities, I realized that it wasn't only Master who told us about communities. It was our whole line of gurus, starting with Jesus Christ, who said, where two or more are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. And so I was thinking about this spiritual renewal week, and every year it catches me by surprise. Every year I think of the week as being about classes and inspiring um, activities and so on. But every year I'm surprised by this uplift of divine power that is brought through all these souls together seeking God. And so the good news is not all of you will be going back to community but Jesus says, where two or more are gathered. So if you can just find one other person <laughs> and dedicate your relationship to God, you will draw his presence much more than times two, many more times than just adding. So Jesus also said, and this I think is the greatest secret of Ananda, and you'll probably hear more about it this morning, seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. Um, when I came to Ananda in 1971, there was pretty much nothing here in the way of material resources, and actually the human resources didn't look all that <laughs> promising either. <laughs> but, <laughs> but we were seeking the kingdom of God, and we did have our teacher to show us and lead us in that, and that has been what has blessed this community. Again, something you can take with you when you leave. And the final point I wanted to share from Jesus is, I believe, extremely important in looking at community as a way to free yourself from ego. He said, Suffer little children to come unto me, 
for of such is the kingdom of heaven. To be able to live in childlike joy frees us from self-importance, from pride, from the tendency to be too involved in our own difficulties. This was something that Swami Kriyananda showed us so well by example. Always underlying everything was this joy. He had surgery many years ago. It was a serious surgery. And one of the Ananda members came into the hospital room when the surgery was over. It was pretty good, going to be pretty painful, he thought. Swami would be in pain. And Swami was chuckling. And the uh, disciple said, um, what's happening? He said, well, I'm telling myself jokes. <laughs> and he was telling his favorite jokes and laughing at them. And, and he said, he said, laughter should be used as a deliberate sword of battle against the forces of delusion. Laughter tunes us in to God's joy, and God's joy leads us to freedom. So then we have Lahiri Mahashai, Mahavatar Babaji, who brought us Kriya Yoga. And Kriya Yoga teaches us, not by precept, but by experience, that all the happiness that we're hoping to find outside of ourselves is actually living inside of us. And we can choose to live in that joy all the time. And when we live in that joy, we discover that it really doesn't matter so much how other people behave. We really don't need them to behave a certain way to make us happy. And that leads to a lot more harmony in relationships, in community. So that's part of why people at Ananda seem so happy. Not because of all of this, but because of all of this that we've learned from our masters. And Sri Yukteswar, Sri Yukteswar said the greatest thing. He said, learn to behave. <laughs> Fundamental principle of community. Someone else less exalted in their wisdom than Sri Yukteswar said that in this world, you can be either a vacuum cleaner or a washing machine. <laughs> a vacuum cleaner sucks up all the dirt, all the negativity, holds it inside, and sometimes it just has to dump it out on someone or something. But a washing machine takes in whatever dirty clothes come its way and sends them back clean. And so many of us have had the great blessing for 40 years of living with a washing machine, Swami Kriyananda, showing us that if you don't have egoic attachments... It doesn't matter what people say to you. It doesn't matter how they treat you. You just are free to say, what is the most useful thing I can give to this situation? Not how do I feel about that, what buttons are being pushed, but what is the most useful way I can respond? It takes more energy, but it's much more fulfilling and it's infinitely more freeing 
and liberating. So Sri Teshwar. Then we come to Master and to Swamiji, who are our most direct links with the idea of community. Master said, I am planting the seed of community in the ether, the blueprint. My words are registered in the ether. This blueprint of community was planted by him. And what is that blueprint? Was it a blueprint that said, here's how we should organize community. We want to have a governing body. We want to have a spiritual director. We want to have a village manager. No, the blueprint was for brotherhood. The blueprint was for for respect for every person, for living in harmony, for living in cooperation, for living in inner freedom. That was the blueprint that he gave us. And his teachings told us how to do that. And Swami's teachings told us how to do that. But what really told us how to do that was the example of Swami living it before our eyes. Because he lived without personal attachment, without egoic attachment, he showed us a person who didn't defend himself in any situation. He said, I make it a principle never to try to defend myself. He didn't um, need to exert power over us. He didn't even see us in the role of followers. He saw us in the role of friends. He saw himself as our friend. And he lived in this such a place of freedom that when we saw it, all you could say is, well, that looks good. I'd like to do that. It doesn't look that hard. I think I could be that kind of a person. And that, we hope, to the extent that we can, those of us who knew him, try to live it to the best of our ability, And hopefully those who see that want to live it to the best of their ability. And gradually it spreads. But I wanted to share just a couple of examples or stories from Swami that showed this. Um, Earlier this year, Naya Swami Jaya told a story that actually probably many of us or most of us heard. I want to share it again because I want to add something to it. Um, When Jaya was first here in about 1970, there were probably 30 or 40 people living here. And most of those people no longer didn't last that long here. But one of the men in the community at that time made some serious blunders, some very public blunders, I guess more than one and consecutively. And people were really mad at him. And he just, he took a lot of abuse, probably that was what made him decide to leave. And after that, Jaya was talking to Swami Kriyananda about this. And Jaya said, you know, I know the man made mistakes, but I wasn't comfortable with the way people jumped on him the way they did. And Swami said, he said, yes, I agree with you. If your friends can't be loyal to you when you're in trouble... What kind of friends are they? Now, this story is extremely powerful in and of itself as an example of compassion and kindness and love. But, you know, I reflected on it afterwards for a long time because to me what it said 
is this incredible, and this I think is one of the real secrets of Ananda, this incredible wisdom and understanding Swami had that nobody is perfect. Why should we be surprised if people make mistakes? If they're here on the planet, by definition, they're imperfect. If they're imperfect, by definition, they're going to blow it at some point. Let's just accept that. And I think that attitude of just respecting people, no matter what, is really one of the foundations of Ananda because it's so common in the world for people to create exalted standards of behavior that they wish that they could personally emulate. And then when other people don't raise themselves to their standard, then we can get all self-righteous and judgmental. And what does it do? It builds our own ego. And so with this idea that no, it's fine. Yes, he didn't behave in the right way. Yes, I try to hold out a higher standard for people. But this is fine. This is how he is. And we'll still support him. Some years later, maybe 20 years, uh, 10 years or so years later, another person in the community made another public mistake. And for 30 years, I've remembered what Swami said at that point. People were upset. People in the community were upset. And Swami at one point said, I know a lot of people are upset by this mistake, or he didn't didn't use the word mistake, are upset by this choice. He said, but these things happen. Three words. These things happen. Boom. End of story. You You can let it go. Let your ego relax. No need to get aroused about that. Just give your support. Someone um, said to Swamiji at a satsang I was at, Sir, how do we forgive people? And he looked at her. I think he was reading deeper levels of her being. And he said, don't think about forgiveness. Think about acceptance. And I realized that in the many years that we were here and all the many, many books Swami wrote and all the talks we heard, He rarely talked about forgiveness, occasionally, but rarely. And I think it was not a big part of who he was. I don't think he thought he owed anyone forgiveness. I think he just saw this is a person with a lack of understanding, lack of kindness perhaps, lack of whatever. Just accept them. This is who they are. And he gave that to everyone which is definitely an expansive way to get beyond our own little egos. I'd like to leave you with um, a thought. This is the last, turned out to be the last words Swamiji said to me um, in 2012, a year before he died. And I'm sharing them with you, not because... He said them to me, but because I think he would say them to everyone here. They're not words that were meant to praise. They were words that were meant to redirect, to refocus, to point us in the direction of inspiration. What he said to me was, 
Thank you for the love you have given me all these years. It was a beautiful and perfect example of the way he taught. There was nothing there for the ego to hold on to. He didn't say, you're an exceptionally loving person. You're better at loving than anyone else. He just said, thank you for the love you have given me all these years. And what it does is it redirects your attention to what's really, really important inside of yourself, the love you have for God. And so what I would like to suggest as a takeaway for you from this week of so much inspiration is to take this into your meditation. I've done this many times and see what it does for you. Imagine that God is saying to you, thank you for all the love you have given me through the years. And what it will do, don't worry if you don't think you've given God that much love. It doesn't matter. He didn't say that. He said, thank you for the love you have given me, not the love you didn't give me. So just focus, <laughs> focus on the love you've given God And it is a way to free yourself from ego. And it is a way to live in communion and community with everyone you meet. Namaste. Good morning. My name is Nayaswami Padma. And along with Nayaswami Riemann, we direct the, we're the spiritual directors of Ananda in Seattle. Listening to Anandi, I had my laughter hit this morning as I was leaving the house and little Tulsi said, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> I'm all set. <laughs> <laughs> You know, through the years, I attended many, many classes that Swami Kriyananda gave on the Hong Sa technique, on the Om technique, Kriya initiations he gave, dozens, many, many dozens. And in those classes, he was brilliant. No, no words he spoke about these techniques, around these techniques, were ever the same. There was always new insights and things. But the techniques themselves were always exactly the same, the way his guru taught them to him. He was orthodox about the techniques himself, notwithstanding all the other creativity that revolved around it. Well, similarly... Around the basic principles that are the foundation of communities, he was orthodox. He was brilliant and creative around every other aspect, but around those principles, which I want to just touch on briefly this morning, because that's all I have, is very brief, a few of them. And to the... uh, 
surface to the top floats people are more important than things where there is right action there is victory many of us have heard him address those topics again and again through the years but one one time i want to share a story it was maybe around 1983 or 4 and he had a few of us over for tea and he said i want to talk about i want us all to think about and meditate on the way the community should be governed he, at that point he was clearly the spiritual director of the community the founder and spiritual director but he was out on the road quite a bit sharing the heart of yogananda and um he realized that back here we needed to clarify how things were governed how the leadership of the community would work so he asked us to meditate on that but in the tea this discussion ensued and he said think about any um society of the past of history that we can point to where people lived nobly where they lived with high ideals where think about how those societies were governed and then he talked a little bit i love history so i was fascinated by this conversation and then he talked a little bit about how in the united states our founding fathers had been brilliant in the way they set up the governance and with checks and balances the legislature the executive branch and the judicial however in the united states we very carefully separate church and state and in our communities these are spiritual communities so we have to have a different expression well we all went home and we meditated on this and the next day or two he called us back together and he said i keep coming back to a general manager and a spiritual director and the general manager looks out for the welfare of the entire community and looks out for organizing everything that benefits the community but the spiritual director looks out for the welfare of the individual and so people are more important than things was integrated in how he saws governing ourselves and that spiritual director of course also looks at whether that direction whatever it is is dharmic whatever that action is the community wants to take is dharmic and of course where there is right action there is victory so infused in the very way in which we work together with one another are these two principles for perpetuity they'll be carefully nurtured well about 10 years later i was watching a movie on the life of king saul and it was in you know old biblical times i looked it up later turns out to be 1025 bc and king saul wanted to go out and he wanted to conquer more lands uh 
But in those days, the way they governed is with a king and a prophet. And every region had a prophet. And if the prophet didn't concur with the king's direction, didn't give his blessing, the people would follow the prophet and not the king. So he knew he was powerless unless he consulted the wisdom of the prophet and brought that into his decisions. And of course, I was reflecting that 1025 BC is descending Dwapara. So this concept of a prophet and a king came from a higher age, and it had descended, and now they were getting pretty close to Kali, and it only took a few hundred more years before the kings were killing the prophets. (laughs) You see. But now we're in ascending Dwapara Yuga, and Swamiji is bringing back or brought back for us this general principle this general concept, because it is in tune with the age we are going towards. And that means it's in tune also with our higher nature. And then, of course, people are more important than things. The other aspect of it is the other, a couple of the other thoughts were too many rules kill the spirit. Master Yogananda told Swami Kriyananda when he was in charge of the monks, he gave him that guidance. And Swamiji translated that into our community life. And he started this community with two rules, no drugs, no alcohol. And then a little later, no dogs got added in. (laughs) Because they ran in packs and barked and things, but... You know, uh, in Seattle, we tend to sort of look the other way about the dogs now and then. We've had a community dog virtually the whole time I've been there. If if we interview them and they don't bark, they're okay. (laughs) But no drugs, no alcohol. It doesn't get any simpler than that. At one point, we had a woman in our community who was not there for very long, and she was passionate about recycling and composting. And, and those are good things, and I'm all for it. But she, was, she took it to a whole other octave. And so she had on the wall in the community kitchen this long list of steps and things that everybody needed to do. And at one point, she was really angry with this person who apparently wasn't following her instructions. And she came to me and she said, can you kick this person out of the community? No. (laughs) You know, you don't even have to be a vegetarian. You can smoke if that's still your habit, as long as it doesn't interfere with other people. We don't want to do anything to constrict people's personal initiative because this spiritual path is all about developing our own inner will and our inner strength and personal initiative to seek God. The other aspect they talked about was grassroots decision-making. Let those people who are most affected by whatever the situation is come together and try to find solutions. And that went hand-in-hand with decentralization, 
having the colonies be autonomous. I reread the book, the one of the older versions of cooperative communities, how to start them and why. And in the 70s already, before we had colonies to speak of, he talked about making them autonomous because that that freedom of of growth, expression, personal initiative is essential in the spiritual path and too much control. We have no control. God has control. But when we're given control, when the human nature is given control, the ego grabs it and just compounds it like the kings. And so decentralization, grassroots decision-making... So I remember I was uh, coordinating the activities of the publishing here when I lived here at Ananda Village, and things were really thriving. They were really bustling. There were a lot of different aspects happening in publishing. Swami was extremely, um, uh, what do you call it? (laughs) Yes, writing a lot of books. But we had a lot of other aspects we were doing. And we were located at the Crystal Hermitage at that point. But there was so much going on and so much staff needed and, and inventory and all of that that we ended up with about three or four locations all around the community. And I had to go around every day and coordinate all the activities for all those locations. So one day it was decided that we would look at trying to build a publishing building. And somebody drew a sketch, and we sat around a table with, you know, the planners and some of the people in Crystal Clarity and Swamiji. And people were looking at different places this building could be sited. And then Swamiji said, how about here? And he pointed to right next to the chapel at Crystal Hermitage on the other side of the fence, where cars park right now for the staff. And there was a gasp, especially among some of the people at the table who lived at the Crystal Hermitage. And they said, but Swamiji, it's so peaceful here. It's so pristine here. It's so uplifting here. Why would we want a a busy working department here? And Swamiji said, we have too many separations in our spiritual life. We think in terms of our personal life and our work life and our, our, our home life and our social life and our church life. He said, it's all in God. It all becomes seamless. It becomes transparent. And so the book that he wrote about communities after he had started the communities, was called Cities of Light. And Cities of Light was all about crystal clarity, clearness, clarity, crystal clarity in business, crystal clarity in marriage, crystal clarity in the home life, crystal clarity in the work life. And he was thrilled when Master offered those thoughts and words to him. When he wrote that book, he felt he was really on to something. And reflecting on it, 
these communities, they're like a, a crucible for ego transcendence, as Anandi was describing, but they're also crystals because they're holding out the ideals, the principles. People are more important than things. Where there is right action, there's victory. Too many rules kill the spirit. Grassroots decision-making, decentralization, simple principles, but they are in tune with our higher nature and they are in tune with the age to come. And that is why communities will spread like wildfire, as Paramahansa Yogananda predicted. Hi, friends. My name is Zachary. Most of you probably know me as Zach, but my mom has always called me Zachary. And she's sitting over here, so... <laughs> I'm going to be Zachary right now. I hail from uh, Ananda Seattle community with Riemann and Padma, and for about the last three years have been helping to start the Ananda farm on Kameno Island. Uh, it's an experimental farm, and we got into this having no idea what we were doing. And what we thought we were starting was a farm, but it has turned out to be nothing like that. Um, what we're talking about today is this concept of communities in this new age. And for a lot of the new people here, I'm not sure entirely how familiar you are with uh, the age we've just entered of Dwapara Yuga, and that's the energy age. But recently, a book was written called The Yugas, which, has had a pro which had a profound impact on my own consciousness, and I'm sure many of the people here who've, who've also had the chance to, to study it and open up to the teachings of Sri Yukteswar and Yogananda. The basic premise of the yugas is that our evolution is no longer, is not linear as we've thought from a Darwinian perspective, but it is cyclical. That we are, as Padma mentioned, entering a different age and that we are actually now ascending. When I first read this, like many of you maybe, I felt a load release from my shoulders that was so huge, I couldn't hardly believe what I had just read. It made so much sense to me on an intuitive feeling level, and I had never heard anyone say this. But from that, what I've found happen to myself is that it's opened me up to an expansion of thought that we're not limited to the times that we live in. That's what these communities represent here. That's what these teachings represent. And that's what our direction is is to get to the highest age inside of ourselves. Now, when I found the Ananda communities, I was in a period of incredible searching, deep searching for what is real in this world. I didn't know I was looking for God. But when I found Ananda, I realized 
it was a place of people coming together that were actually looking for that. And up until that point, I did not truly believe that anywhere on the planet existed that people could think that way. I grew up in the Midwest, and I went to school at the University of Missouri where I got a degree in finance. I worked in corporate finance in Philadelphia and San Francisco before I had what I would call a quarter-life crisis. <laughs> really. And just went to sleep every night asking myself, what is real? Oh my God, what is real? Nothing in this world is real. And from that point, I, a grace came into my life that felt like Divine Mother, a presence, joined me on the search for what is real. And I, with my partner, Haley, we moved to Los Angeles, which at the time was, I had no awareness of the presence of Master in Los Angeles. So it did not have the answers that I was looking for at the time. But what I realized was happening was every weekend I was leaving. I was going to Joshua Tree and to Los Padres and to Malibu, and I was finding a relationship with spirit in this world that existed in nature. We took a backpacking trip in the Sierra Mountains, and distinctly I remember the feeling, I'm supposed to live here, right, right here where I am. And that's exactly what we did. Within a week, we had gone back down from the mountain, and we had been offered jobs in that exact spot that we lived, that, we, that I was at when I had the feeling. And we spent the next two years living in the high country of the Sierras at between seven and 8,000 feet. My life changed so drastically in that experience from living in these cities, being involved with finance, to experiencing a world I didn't realize was out there. We, we literally collected our water from the creeks. Every morning, we greeted the sun, and we realized the presence of a peace and a harmony in the spirit that exists in this land that I hadn't remembered since I was a child, that I had lost. And so this is the community that I'm here speaking of right now. It's of our mother and nature, it's of the life that we share the planet with. There's a really, really wonderful story that starts out in the first chapter of Autobiography. And it's actually the last story that Master tells as he ends the chapter. Many of you probably know this, but for whatever reason, it's always had a particular... I've always felt so drawn to this story because he exemplifies some wonderful truths in it. And it really is exemplary of the whole mission he brought to the West of introducing us to the Divine Mother concept of God. Master is, has a balcony, and on it he has a picture of Kali. And this is where he worships Kali in the form of Mother Nature. He's standing on the balcony one day with his sister Uma, and they're watching kite battles. And he, and he says that he has the distinct feeling that in this spot, he could ask Divine Mother anything, and she would grant that wish. So she challenges him, and he says, I will bring that kite to this balcony. I will get my hands on that kite. 
Absurd as that may have sounded to her, the, the kite battle started, the kite was cut, and with a cool breeze, like the ones we're getting today and this entire week, that kite drifted onto a cactus that sat by the balcony. Yogananda unhitched it and he handed it to his sister. Still in disbelief at what just happened, she challenged him again. Impossible. You can't do, possibly do it again. And master, the, the kite battle starts, and the same thing happens. His friend, the breeze, kicks in, and his friend, the cactus, reaches up and pulls the kite in. Stumped, Uma concedes this battle and leaves the balcony. But the lesson that Master reveals to us in this is his attunement to Divine Mother through Mother Nature. That was not a cactus. It was not the breeze. That was spirit. That Master understood that. He was one with it. And, he re- and with that reveals the potential to all of us from the very first chapter of autobiography, our own inherent potential to interact with life on that level. When we came down from the mountains after the first year, it was the hardest, most devastating feeling I've ever experienced when we had to leave. And when we dropped into that central valley, and what we experienced was a desert of life. This is where the humans were. This is... <laughs> this is how we grew our food. What are we, what are we doing? I, it was so hard to understand. For me, it was, I still don't understand it. But within me and within Haley developed a resolve that when it's time for us to leave these mountains, we're going to come out and we're going to farm. And we're going to farm with love in our hearts for nature. That second season when we left, we knew it was time to leave. We can't live forever on this mountaintop. We have to come back into the world and serve our purpose. And during that second year, we had autobiography. We had the teachings with us. And Master came in. When Haley came here to do yoga teacher training, I would visit her on the weekends. I remember when I first visited, I thought this can, like I said, I thought this cannot possibly be real. These people cannot be this happy. I see Melody standing over here, and I remember specifically feeling like, this, there must be an angel. But the second weekend when I visited, the shift happened inside of myself. And I realized it is real. We can live this way. I got to see Gyandev give a talk, and not a talk, a three-hour Mahabharata. He performed the entire thing by himself. And the following Sunday, I watched Ananta give Sunday service on the spiral staircase. And the distinct thought that crossed my mind was, is that Jesus? (laughs) So where I'm going with this is that my path with nature, my path with, with, with life is a path that we all share. Our interconnectedness to everything in this world. And I can imagine no other place in the world to be than with Ananda. And it's just such a blessing to be here. Let's just grow the life on this planet. 
Let's love all the life. Padma mentioned a few great things, and one of them, no, this was Anandi, I'm sorry, Padma. (laughs) It was acceptance. And when we find acceptance in our hearts for all the life that we share with this planet, we realize there's nothing wrong with anything. There are no weeds. There are no bad plants because everything has consciousness and everything is serving a purpose. That's the way it is with all of us. And that's the way it is in God's cosmic dream in all this life that we share it with. So let's grow the acceptance. Let's love each other. And let's farm. <laughs> Fifteen minutes. Um, could I get the, uh, the podium? Thank you. Good morning, everyone. How are you? Great. We're talking about community this morning, and I'm going to cheat and get an extra few minutes for my talk and have you all stand up for your seventh inning break. But this is about community. Uh, 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 Uh-uh-uh-uh. Take the hands of the people next to you. Have at least one hand you're connected to. Try and have two. Now stretch. Okay. Yeah, stretch. Find a way that accommodates everybody. Feels good. And then whenever you're ready. Please be seated. Okay. For those that don't know us, don't know me, my name is Nayaswami Daiva. And with my wife, Nayaswami Gangamata, I have the privilege of serving as the spiritual director, uh, co-director up in and on to Portland. And we've had the privilege also of facilitating the the founding and the development of Ananda Center at Laurelwood. Can you give me this note for me? Thank you. Aha. That's okay. Again, because I only had 15 minutes, uh, each of us only got 15 minutes, and I had chosen to speak on how to found communities. Um, we have, um, you know, basically 50, 50 years times however many people have ever been connected with Ananda throughout the world, including those watching today uh, on the Internet. Um, we have all the reasons why. And I guess to some degree we have the hows. But I thought, you know, I'm going to be really creative. I'm going to be really inspirational. This is going to be um, an engaging thing instead of just a talk. So I thought, I will have... Uh, Dambara and Pandaranga, and I will, they're musicians, for those who don't know them, and I'll have them just come up, and we'll stand up, and we'll sing some songs. We'll sing a song. And I thought, what song would I like to really have that I feel like delivers the message we're working with today? And I thought, you know, I will always think of thee. I thought, you know, and the master's version of that was God, God, God. And then our music team delivered the most beautiful Uh, expressions of, I will always think of thee, and God, God, God. So I had to go back to the sounding board and uh, figure out how I was going to do this. And, you know, it's interesting. It's all about how we see things. Because, uh, oh, shoot, darn, now I don't know what to do. So I thought, I know we'll have walk like a man and many hands make a miracle. (laughs) 
So what I really have now is 45 minutes worth of talk, of which all but 15 have been delivered. <laughs> I, want to, I want to go back to, I think it was Dr. Peter who talked about the Cohen. We have a very interesting Cohen when it comes to community. And I'm going to borrow, I'm probably going to, I'm going to paraphrase, and I'm probably going to distort it. I apologize, Jaya, if I do too much disservice to your part of it. But uh, I had a conversation with Jaya. I listened to Swami Kriyananda many years speak about communities. And Swami Kriyananda said something very interesting one time that Jaya echoed. He said, I'm not interested in community. He said, I'm absolutely not interested in community for community's sake. And Jaya said, there is, this is 20 years ago. I don't know if you would amend this now, Jaya. But he said, there's absolutely no excuse for a community. But then he said, unless you're going to do something that otherwise is not possible. He said, you spend your time building roads after having paid taxes to build roads. You end up building schools after having paid taxes to build schools. You recreate everything having already tried to facilitate that in the greater world. But it's that very possibility, Swami Kriyananda's message about, there's, about not being interested in community, is it's not about people just coming together. We are, in fact, it's interesting if we stop for even a moment and think, we are never out of community. We're never, for the slightest moment, not connected to everything around us. And we are hardwired for community. We are hard, and again, I'm going to paraphrase, I couldn't find the research, and the man who told me isn't available to me at this point. But he said that there was a Harvard study or a Yale study, some, some big um, organization studied a sociology aspect, which was, what is it that people think of when they're not thinking of something else? What is it that we think of when we're not thinking of of something else? And how compelling is it that we think of that? And it turns out that what we think of is our social group, our tribe, and our particular relationship to it. We think of our community. We think of ourselves in relationship to others, And it's so compelling that you can take people with the deepest concentration focused on the most abstruse things, and within a matter of seconds after they've stopped focusing on that, their mind has reverted to that question of, who am I? Where does my happiness come from? How am I related to the environment around me, the people around me? And so when when Swami Kriyananda talks about, and he's given his life, and Jai has given his life, and Yogananda stressed over and over and over the value and the power and the meaning of community. It's the power and meaning of conscious community. It's the coming together for things that are not otherwise possible. And then Swami Kriyananda, in his book, Cities of Light, it's a brilliant read. It's remarkable. We should all ingest this until it pours out of our very pores. It just runs through us. But he starts the book off, as Padma noted, it's about crystal clarity. But he starts the book. Imagine. Imagine a city. A beautiful city, 
such as a city of tomorrow ought to be. Imagine small residential areas within the city, each surrounded by beautiful parkland for its residents' enjoyment. Imagine homes joyfully designed according to their residents' needs. Imagine beautiful, expansive vistas wherever you feast your eyes. Imagine a city in which the residents really have a say in determining its shape, growth, and overall philosophy. Imagine farm and dairy land. Imagine shops. Imagine businesses. Imagine a community of people. Imagine a community where. Imagine. 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 You know, it's funny, somebody suggested that we are, in fact, those of us connected to this ray of the divine light, we are, in fact, a nation without geography. And perhaps we are just an imagination. In the truest and deepest sense, it's that capacity to hold a vision in the midst of our conversations with each other, in the midst of our daily activities, in the midst of getting up in the morning, brushing your teeth, having your cup of coffee, going to work, interacting with all those all throughout the day, struggling with a misunderstanding, walking through nature or not. In every moment, it's the capacity to hold an imagination of what's possible, what's possible around us, but more importantly, what's possible through us. One of the thoughts that I had about how to, um, I've noted about how to found a community, and I found this, um, I moved with my family here to Ananda Village in 1985, and I've never since lived outside of an Ananda community and in fact, it's so, it's, it was odd when, we, when the invitation came to speak of community, um, what to say, because it's like you standing around and trying to talk about the air you breathe, or the water you drink, or the sun that shines on you. We, t- we start to take it so much for granted. It's, how would you live if not for this? Why would you live any other way? So much so that when Ananda was deeply challenged, I'll come back around, but when Ananda was so deeply challenged by the lawsuit that its very existence was a question, Asha had a, had a brilliant moment of many, but she just said, so what? What do they think they're going to do? What do they think is going to happen? If they sue us out of existence, what do they think is going to happen? We're just going to walk right down the street and start all over. This is something divine. This is born in the heart and imagination of God. Drawn to this world by the aspirations of those of us who remember the possibility of something greater than what we daily experience. So a good pattern for life is to get up in the morning, go meditate, and do what's next. It makes it so simple. We don't have to have a grand plan for our lives or a grand plan for our community. Get up in the morning, energize, meditate, listen, feel. Let go of, of your own surmise, your own thoughts of how it should be, and reach for what's possible. Walk like a man. We have to own ourselves. 
the first thing we have to do if we're going to have a community is not become codependent. We have to own ourselves. We have to own our relationship with God first. And we have to take that deeply enough that when we come together, God's light radiates through us individually and uniquely the way it is intended, the way God always wanted. There are things that can only come through you and you and you and me that nobody else can produce. And if we're not living that, we're living a borrowed life. How do we know how to stand? How do we know what to bring? God, 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 I will always think of thee. Then constantly holding that memory, that thought of God's presence. What would he do right now? What would he do here? How would he bless this circumstance? What would he invite into this moment? And then many hands make a miracle, joining hands together and stretching together, coming into the experience of each other. You know, it's funny. Swami Kriyananda was asked one time, what was it like living with Yogananda? And he had a one-word answer. Many of you know it. But if you don't, it's fascinating. He said it was inconvenient. I would say that about community also. It's inconvenient. At the level where we're so self-involved, it's extraordinarily inconvenient. But it's interesting, Swami Kriyananda touted his time with Yogananda as the most powerful and meaningful thing that has existed in his ex- ever for him. So that inconvenience pales in the face of the blessings that come. And so too with community. The inconvenience of accommodating a larger reality pales in the face of the blessings that come from the connections that we share together. So there are a couple of other things. I've got just a couple of minutes left. We could spend, and I brought these because I didn't know which bullet I needed to pull out. I didn't know where this talk was going to go after being shot down so many times. So I'm just going to read a few things, a few thoughts that I had. We all look different. Look around, just briefly, look around you and look at just exactly how different we all are. How ridiculously different we all are (laughs) to be one community. That's not by accident, I'm sure of it. After 30 years of pondering it, I'm sure that we are so different because God needs, there are so many different kinds of people on this planet, and God needs emissaries that can go and reach and touch so many different kinds of people. We did a builder's retreat. I spent many years, uh, formative years as a, as a builder, and we did a builder's retreat. And we spent our time in silence the first day. We broke into three teams. In silence, we had to go out with very primitive tools and design a sacred space, three teams. And the second day, we had to, again, in silence, build it. And the three teams created three different, incredibly different things. One was grottoed into the, into the sea cliff. One was out in the middle of the sand. One was on a promontory looking out. And then we went and broke the silence, and we went to these sacred places and meditated. And everyone was so uniquely different. And everyone was so filled with divine power. It was so beautiful. You're not broken. You're made the way you are because God needs you just that way. But it only fills itself out if you have tuned in and it's radiating that divine power. You know what? We're almost done. If you want more, come and find me. I've got a long list.
Yogananda said, Brotherhood is an ideal better understood by example than precept. Be around those who are living it. Be a part of living it. Be a part of making it an example, not a precept. And then, in finding happiness at the end of the movie, Juliet is leaving Ananda. And she's, she doesn't know how to hold this. She doesn't know how to take this with her where she's going. And so she says, how can I do this? And Swami, so sweetly, he's just sitting there so innocently, so softly in the chair. They're just facing each other. And he says, you can even start a community of your own. <laughs> it's valid. You can do it. Everybody can do it. Just get a few friends. Buy some land in the country. And if you can't stay there full time, at least go there on weekends. Be a kind and loving family, and you can make it work. It's just an extended family. Don't live to be unhappy. Live to be happy. You will find sharing with others makes you much happier than taking from them. So to close this, I'm going to try to wrap a few threads together and take this up to a slightly more cosmic level. And that's situating community and where we are in this flow of time. Time, as we were told earlier, doesn't exist. But Master was the avatar for the new age, as Zach mentioned, the age of Dwapara Yuga. And this concept of communities that he brought is particularly important at this junction in history. And so I want to talk about that a little bit. And I want to mention two things. It's important for us as devotees of self-realization, for us to move towards God, to practice these techniques. It's also extremely important. Again, he was an avatar for an age, not just for us. It's extremely important for what's happening on this planet right now. And Swami and Master have talked about both of those, and I want to go into that. And as Zach mentioned, we're in a, coming into a new age of Dwapara Yuga. We've come out of a dark age of materialism of Kali Yuga in 1700, and we just moved into Dwapara proper in 1900. It's about when Master incarnated. He came at the beginning of the proper Dwapara Yuga. And the Yugas are changes in consciousness on the planet brought about by our solar system getting closer to the grand center of the galaxy, getting more energy, more consciousness, more enlightenment, and the lower ages is moving away. But right now we're moving towards that, and we need to open ourselves and become channels for that energy that's coming in. And we look at it, and people, when you tell them you're in a new age, they look around and they go, oh my God, what is going on here? This is a mess. And it's true, it is a mess. And what's happening, the old ways, the old forms, dogmas, materialism, structures of Kali Yuga are being broken down. And things are falling apart, it looks like. And what's happening is there's lots more energy coming in. What are we doing with that energy? It hasn't quite gotten into a new way of being. What it's really doing is being applied to old ways of thinking. So there was a material age now animated by more energy, materialism is rampant. 
materialism is actually growing. We're actually getting more and more of these things because we're applying energy to our old ways of being, of looking for happiness outside ourselves. So there are also people who are realizing this isn't such a good thing. And there's two groups. There's groups that are looking forward, which masters the avatar and the guide for those. But there's also groups that are looking backwards. And when they see the old forms and the old dogmas breaking down, what's happening? They're grabbing onto the past. And so we see this tremendous energy of fundamentalism in the world. It's really interesting. I was reading a little bit about ISIS. And actually, the people that are attracted to that group, a lot of them were trying to reject this meaninglessness, this materialism, this lack of moral principles that's seen in the, in the world. But where were they going with that? They were going back to something that was put out at the depths of, Dwapari, of, of Kali Yuga in 700 BC. We're going to establish a caliphate that has to do with this. And I mean, I won't go into it because I might get targeted, but uh, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's not the answer. They're going back into rigidity, into form. They're not looking at the expansion of consciousness. So we're in this new age, and Master came as a, to give us a way out of this. And as us as individual devotees, we've really realized there is something wrong here. We need to go somewhere else. And he gave us the path of Kriya Yoga. He gave us the techniques. What's the basis of all his techniques? The basis is energy. Kriya, as we talked about, is moving energy in the body. It's looking at the flows of energy. It's trying to expand our consciousness into this broader reality. We need to practice these techniques, and we can realize God. So where do communities come into this? Well, in case you haven't realized or you're not aware, it's not always easy to practice these things when the world, the entire world, is applying more energy to materialistic Kali Yuga things. It's hard to nurture that. And communities, for us as devotees, are a bastion of a place where we can come together, where we can sort of put up some barriers. So we can, as Zach was saying, in our, we can plant the garden of self-realization and not have it overrun by gophers and dogs and cats. And we need to protect that little plant. And that's what communities do. And I don't probably need to tell most of you because not all of you live at uh, Ananda Village, but, you know, I live here and I've been here for 23 years. I forgot to introduce myself. My name is Atman. <laughs> uh, I've been living here for 23 years. I serve as the community manager. And so, you know, you get sort of involved here. So I was saying, well, you know, how bad is materialism out there? So uh, I wanted to give you a couple. I, I went to a couple key statistics. So commercial real estate, the biggest growth area in commercial real estate is self-storage. And <laughs> there are now 50,000 self-storages in this country comprising some 2.5 billion square feet of storage. That's 76 square miles of storage to store our stuff. Every single person in the United States, there's enough room to store every person in a self-storage and have leftover room. <laughs> so stuff, stuff is still happening. And, you know, okay, you could say, well, maybe it's because people are getting into smaller houses and they can't quite let rid of their stuff yet, and it's a step to, you know, moving it aside. Well, guess what? Houses are getting bigger. The median size of houses has grown 75% in the last 50 years. And at the same time, the family size has dropped by 40%. <laughs> 
So we have bigger houses, fewer people, and people have at least three times the space that they used to have 50 years ago in their house. What do they do with that? Materialism, it's the house, it's the stuff. So this is out there, it's happening. And I'm sure you all can <laughs> relate to that. So in a community, what we're trying to do is we're trying to co-mingle with people who have slightly different values because it's, it's hard to break that magnetism. Society has, uh, you know, don't ever underestimate it. Master said, you know, environment is stronger than willpower. That environment around you has a magnetism. And even, this is, a, this is an interesting example. I was thinking of magnetism that I live here in Onda Village. I don't have a television. I'm pretty focused on what's going on here. I'm not, you know, all that far out there. But the magnetism of this world, it creeps in. I also am not a football fan. I don't particularly like football. I never watch football games. And I'm not going to say any more because there's a lot of football fans here. But, <laughs> <laughs> and I don't pay any attention until the end of the season comes around and it's Super Bowl time. And there is like so much energy in this country about the Super Bowl that it starts to affect me. And I start going, oh, yeah, who's playing? And what's the thing? What are they doing? I have nothing to do with football except it's Super Bowl time. <laughs> And usually I push it aside, but it's that magnetism out there. It is very, very strong. And what we need to do, what Master gave in communities for the devotee, is to create our own magnetism here. It's to be with like-minded people who meditate two or three hours a day instead of watching television four or five hours a day. And it's to get with those people, reinforce those values. When you're being drawn outward into materialism, there's always somebody there to uplift you, seeing, oh, yeah, let's go meditate. Let's have a kirtan. Let's chant. Oh, yeah, I was working on this chant. It is much, much easier when you are in the cocoon or the womb of like-minded souls who are trying to live these high ideals. So that's the first part of communities that Master brought. It was for us as individual devotees to practice the teachings, to realize God. And you don't need to be in a physical community, necessarily. You can, as they were saying, you know, find satsang, where two or more are gathered in together. It doesn't have to be, but you have to be in with like-minded people to create that magnetism. The last part that's important for the devotee is something that Master and Swami talked about an awful lot, and that's another function of Dwapara Yuga. Dwapara Yuga, before we get farther into it. It's 2,400 years long. We're only 315 years into it. There is inevitable conflict. There's wars that are going to break out. There's cataclysms. The old ways are not going to go easily. There's going to be chaos. As Parvati said, we're already in here amidst the crash of breaking worlds. It's happening around us. And those communities can provide a place of safety, a place to touch back to, a place where you can keep your ideals alive like the monasteries in the Middle Ages. So it's a it's a bastion against the inevitable dissolution that's going to happen around us. And it'll be points of strength for lots of other people. So let's move on now to the second part of what Master came to bring. And that was that communities were going to spread like wildfire. Communities were the way to live in the new age. Communities, above all, were a demonstration and a start, a starting point of channeling some of this new energy to be able to bring the world into new ways of being. 
And we say, well, you know, there's not very many people in community and there's just these little things. And Swami pointed out over and over and over again, it doesn't take that many people to demonstrate something, to start some energy moving. And he pointed to many examples throughout history. The early Christians were a very small band of people. The Greek philosophers in Athens that created this revolution in thinking were a very small group of people. The Renaissance artists in Florence and Firenze and other places, very, very small groups. Likewise, little communities that are focused, that as Padma said, they can bring that crystal clarity to bring, become a beacon for these ideas are very important for bringing in a new age. Because after all, what's happening out there really doesn't have much coherence. Swami said it's just all this seeming energy is just held together by its own inertia. It doesn't really have much focus, and that's that focus that brings magnetism. So communities, small groups of people dedicated to the ideals of Dwapara Yuga, of bringing us into a new age, are going to have tremendous importance for the world. Now, does that mean any community could just say, oh, yeah, I'm a community, and we're, you know, we're bringing in Dwapara Yuga? No. After all, if you think back in history, you look back, probably 90% or more of the world's people in the last two millennium and farther back have lived in small villages and small communities. Are they harbingers of a new age bringing in anything? No. There's a lot of villages that had a lot of wonderful things about them, but there was also a certain fixity to it of dogma, closed, of different caste systems in India, the villages. Sort of people talked about, a lot of modern writers like to talk about the idiocy of village life. And there's this gossip back and forth and hatred and feuds and families. It's not necessarily the harbinger of a new age. Now, however, there are some very good things in those communities. And we might, it's actually very satisfying to see that that is a way that humankind lived for a while, and maybe we can bring that into a new age. The abomination of these huge cities is something that's very, very, very recent and probably not all that sustainable. So moving back to communities may be a good thing. But what's important in a community? A community, it has to be in tune with where we're going in the new age, and that's an expansion of consciousness, a flow of energy, getting past form, getting past materialism, an expansion of sympathies, an expansion of consciousness. And... Many New Age communities are not necessarily tuned into that. And this comes out, many people would ask Swami, can we have communities that aren't spiritually based? And he would sort of pause and look back. He said, well, I suppose, but I think it might be very difficult. And of course, what he always talked about was the spiritual base. That's what's in tune with this New Age. And I actually had a conversation with um, the secretary of the Fellowship of uh, Intentional Communities. So there's a whole group in the United States called this Fellowship of Intentional Communities. It's, it's a very loosely knit registry of intentional communities, and there's lots of them. There's everything from, you know, especially eco-villages now, co-housing groups, group homes, bigger communities, religious communities, secular communities. And I asked him, I said, you know, I, we were talking about this question. I said, do you think it's possible to have spiritual or communities without some spiritual basis to them. And he said, you know, initially there was this big divide in the communities movement. And I think Swami saw this too, that, that people were not all that interested in, in spiritual communities. They saw it as 
dogmatic and there's this there's these leaders at the top that's telling everybody what to do and what to wear and how to think and we're consensus based and we're more egalitarian and we're going to organize our life around organic farming and it doesn't necessarily work there's a lot of those communities didn't hold hold together and what Laird said he was very interested he he actually now makes his living by going around to different communities and helping facilitate process he helps when things are breaking down and the egos are hitting each other and things aren't quite working he goes in there to help smooth off the edges and put some process in place and help people work together again and he said I think I would agree with you if you can define spirituality in a large enough term and it's interesting because Swami in his writings on communities I think it's in the hope for a better world he says spirituality at its simplest level is just thinking about others of a uh, expansion of awareness to include other people's realities an expansion of sympathies so that's a fundamental part of any community that's going to be bringing in the new age there has to be something happening between people if you just have a material system that's trying to organize people that's trying to get them together to say okay we're going to build these greenhouses and we're going to have this and no offense Zach, greenhouses are good we're going to we're going to organize ourselves around this material system it's not going to work because communities are after all about people and you have to look at individual realities you have to look at individual consciousness you have to work with that and that's what's critical in this new age it has to be ego denying rather than ego affirming if you come to a community where it feels like it's ego affirming this is not one of master's communities is leading us into the new age there are however many ego denying communities that aren't necessarily kriya yoga communities and for this to spread like wildfire it's probably going to be other than ananda communities so there's important things happening we just have to tune in to what they are i just want to talk touch on three important trends in the new age that we can look at in communities and as we're creating these beacons of light these crystals these broadcasting stations that are receiving this new energy of dwapara yuga and taking it into something that people can see people can look at it this demonstration that this works this is a new way of doing things so the first thing that swami talked a lot about was the importance of the individual and we've touched on this before but individual consciousness is where it all starts and it's interesting the last page of the autobiography master has a quote in there which I'll paraphrase he says the ills of this anthropomorphic construction known as society are best laid at the feet of every man in other words you can't blame society you got to look at individual consciousness that's where it's all coming from the utopia has to be born in the bosom of the individual man is a soul not an institution outer reforms will only work if inner reforms come first so anything that we're as we're bringing forth in these communities attention as the panel talked to today attention to the individual individual consciousness how are people dealing with things how are people relating how are people being inspired how can you inspire people through love through kindness it's not going to be through rules as padma mentioned the rules are a materially dogmatic fixed way of looking at things we're in a whole different way of looking at things another one is simplicity we're surrounded by so much complexity so much information so many things bombarding us what is the way of the new age 
It's a way that Swami and Master talked a lot about in their communities. It's what Vijay talked about earlier this week. It's the way of intuition. Just tune in. What's behind all these details? What's behind all this? It's a flow of energy. Turn and tune into that flow. That flow has its own intelligence. I just love that so much about Dwapara Yuga. It doesn't matter what's going on. You don't have to understand it. If you've got energy, if you've got a flow and you're tuned into it, it will bring the intelligence. It will bring the answers you need. So in everything we're doing, the decision-making, in, the, in science, in art, in just tune into the, what's behind all these details. Don't get bogged down in all these little details. And the last one is quality over quantity. And the quality is what people are really looking for And what's in their storage units is the quantity. (laughs) And communities are the wonderful place to be able to show that. It's about relationship. It's about the depth of meditation. It's about feeling God's love. It's about feeling nature, that expansion of consciousness. That's what we're looking for. We're looking for happiness. We're looking for that quality of life. And the community movement can help demonstrate that. So... We are disciples of a great master, an avatar for the new age, Paramahansa Yogananda. We are students of a great disciple of the great avatar, Swami Kriyananda. They have given us this construction, this ideal, this way to move forward of communities, both for ourselves as individuals to help our own path to self-realization, but also as a way to serve as beacons of crystals to to draw that energy. If this energy is coming from the center of the galaxy and nobody's there to receive it, nothing's going to happen. So the magnetism of communities as beacons of light to receive and then to project that out there, what works? What is a better way to live? How can we move forward in this age? So thank you all for joining us in this communities movement. So to close, I'd like to invite my fellow speakers to come up, and I'd like you all to rise. And we're going to tune in to some energy that was sent out 66 years ago at a garden party in Beverly Hills when Paramahansa Yogananda sent out this clarion call for communities. We're going to listen to first to Kriyananda reading this passage from the, the New Path, and then we'll tune into that energy and be sending stations, receiving, and sending that out as we chant home together. So we'll, first we'll listen to the tape. This day, he thundered, punctuating every word, marks the birth of a new era. My spoken words are registered in the ether, in the Spirit of God, and they shall move the West. Self-realization has come to unite all religions, We must go on, not only those who are here, but thousands of youths must go north, south, east, and west to cover the earth with little colonies, demonstrating that simplicity of living plus high thinking lead to the greatest happiness. Tuning into that energy, feeling the masters, Swamiji, flowing through us, Take this energy, send it out to the world, which so desperately needs it right now. Oh.
Oh.